Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is brought to you by McCurdy Trained. What makes McCurdy Trained special is not the workouts or the results. It's the relationships that they are willing to develop with their athletes over time. Being a good coach isn't about killer workouts or fads. It's about adapting and adjusting, being willing to listen and understand, and coaching is an art. And McCurdy Trained has some of the best artists in the world at the ready. 2019 is just upon us, and McCurdy Trained caps how many athletes they work with. If you're interested in signing up, send them an inquiry through McCurdyTrained.com, and you can expect a phone call back or an email very, very quickly. The relationship starts with just a phone call. And I'll tell you what, that's exactly what happened with me. When I uh, contacted James about being my coach, he responded back immediately with a call. And we had a very in-depth conversation. And that wasn't a special circumstance. That's exactly what happens with others. I know this not because James McCurdy has told me that, but because other athletes who work with them have told me that. So also want to give a shout out to Megaton Coffee, the official fuel of the Rambling Runner podcast, twice the caffeine of a normal cup of coffee, but also wonderfully tasting, and you better act fast. Promo code RAMBLING20 ends very, very soon. 20% off a pound of coffee. A pound of coffee only costs $14.99. So think about this. If you go buy coffee at a grocery store, it's going to be 10 to 12 ounces. This is 16 ounces of coffee for 15 bucks, and it's twice as caffeinated, which means you'll only use half of it, which means... If you're going to consume the same amount of caffeine as normal, it's really like getting a pound of coffee for $7.50. And that doesn't even count the 20% off. So give it a try, people. Believe me, you're going to like it. So this episode is with Tina Muir. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a good idea who Tina Muir is. Tina also has a running podcast. She has done that for a while now. She was on the Runners Connect podcast before that. And she does an absolutely fantastic job. I listen to her show and is really informative. Also, Tina is a former professional runner. So that's always an interesting you know, conversion from someone who was a professional runner to now a podcaster. She's the only one doing it in the running game, that's for sure. And so it was a really interesting conversation talking about her running journey, talking about the podcasting stuff. Now, her podcast is called Running For Real. And we also talk about something that kind of got her in national and international headlines a few years back when she was basically came forward and talked about amenorrhea and how she'd been dealing with it for almost a decade. And it was a topic that hit home for a lot of people because it just isn't something that's, you know, just isn't talked about. It's not in the public space and she brought it forward. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, that's when Tina kind of reached that next level of um, just popularity with a lot of people because she is so genuine and down to earth and super fun. That's for sure. So we talked about that as well. Also, just quick heads up at the end of this conversation, Tina drops a bomb. She announces that she has a book coming out in a few weeks. So a month from now, a book is coming out by Tina. And please go pre-order this book. So in this show, she says um, that if you pre-order it before the week, before the, 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 the launch week, that it doesn't help out the stats uh, during the launch week. She found out like the next day that that was actually incorrect. So go pre-order this book whenever you have a chance. Once you hear Tina, if you haven't heard her already on her own show, 
you're going to be a huge fan, and you know, this book is going to be great, and just go pre-order the thing. My goodness. Yeah, listen, if you listen to Tina's show, you're getting that for free. So, hey, drop, drop a couple bucks and help Tina out. So, with that being said, here's my episode with Tina Muir. Hello, Tina, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited after hearing so many wonderful things about how much everyone loves you. I'm excited to to get it myself, get this special treatment. <laughs> wow. I'll tell you what. <laughs> that is, I, I feel like I'm on your podcast. That's like such a nice thing for you to say to me. I'm, I'm just excited that you're on my show. I've been listening to you for a long time, back to the Runners Connect days. And it's been, um, I'll tell you. You've, you've just had such an influence on so many people who do the running podcast, not only with your running ability as a professional runner, but to the podcasting as well. So first, oh, thank, thank you for you. coming on the show. I actually listened to your recent episode with Sarah Crouch in mm-hmm. preparation for my interview with her last weekend live at the CIM Expo. And that was so much fun to listen to. When you have guests on your show that you have kind of like a pre pre-existing relationship with do you feel like it goes differently than if you're talking to someone for maybe the first or second time yes and it's mostly a good thing because it just means you just kind of like chatting or like friends like you could tell um, and for anyone listening who has listened to that uh running for real episode with sarah it's i mean that one was to an extreme of just kind of two friends talking which i didn't realize people love as much as they do Um, just kind of as if they were eavesdropping on a conversation. But I also do love the first time I talk to someone, um, if there is, you know, I'm talking to them and there's something that they say and I'm like, oh my God, yes. Like, it's exactly what I think. And I had no idea that was coming. And I just feel like that's such a special moment when, um, or like maybe I'll say something to them and they'll say, yeah, that's exactly what I think. So there's something special about kind of finding a connection with someone that you hadn't didn't have before so yes there's both it's good both have good sides i guess yeah and there's a is a wide range as well right Mm -hmm. because like for you sarah is a close friend and you live close to each other so your relationship is different than say someone you've raced with on and off you know where you see Mm -hmm. races but maybe like spend a little bit of time with like hearing you talk to sarah about how like you surprised her with your pregnancy <laughs> news it was like such an insight into like not only your relationship, but like your life and just, yeah. you know, it, it's when you started doing the show, did you have any idea how much people would connect with you personally? Not just, and not simply the guests that you had on. No, but uh, to be fair, when I first started the, I'm assuming you're talking about the runners connect podcast run to the top. When I was first took that over, I didn't even really know what a podcast was and I didn't really understand what it was. And, you know, at the time, yeah, I just thought it was kind of a thing where I would kind of be like the like essentially the groupie. <laughs> uh, but rather than bands, it'd be these famous running people. And I'd be like, hey, hey, um, um, can I can I talk to you about this? And, and they'd be like, <laughs> fine, I'll give you two minutes of my time. Um, but it just kind of ended up, um, you know, I realized pretty soon that actually these are normal people like they might have incredible things and um have done incredible things but at the end of the day they're still people so I think um you know I've I realized pretty quick that actually um you know I just have to be myself with these people and and it's not as scary as it seems but I didn't think that people would connect with me on a way and I remember the first time I met someone who came up who I went hi I'm Tina and he was like I know <laughs> and I was like oh okay he's like I know your voice anywhere and I was, 
so that was kind of a special moment for me and I remember it very clear that's Jim if you're listening you know who you are <laughs> oh wow you even remember his name when I remember his name yeah that was um actually at the zap fitness camp um what would that been 2015 maybe I was actually with Sarah I went to go stay with her for uh about a week or two I think yeah so <laughs> it was special right. yeah so when you first got into the running podcast world what was what was the allure for you like what what brought you into that arena <laughs> My boss said, you either do a podcast or a video chat. <laughs> and so I said, um, I'll do the podcast because uh, video was terrifying and still is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was working for Runners Connect and he kind of said, Jeff uh, Goddard is very kind of ahead of his time with what he sees opportunities for. And, and he could sense that the podcast was going to do well. Um, at the time, the running uh, Runners Connect podcast had kind of died a death. And he wanted to resurrect it and thought I would be good for it. And the reason he brought me on in the first place was because Jeff is very like to the point and I'm very kind of fluffy and hi and how are you? So he knew that I would be a good person for it. So, yeah. And when you started doing that, what was it like balancing this new part of your life where you, you didn't have a lot of experience. Now, most people don't have a lot of experience in podcasting when they start mm-hmm. podcasting. So you have this new thing where you, I would assume there's a certain amount of stress because you want to do well and people are going to be listening to you and mm-hmm. you're out kind of like in the, in the, in the public realm, but at the same time, you're a professional runner and you want to you know achieve great things. What was it like balancing the two? I mean, I've always been someone as if my journey to becoming pregnant and having a baby didn't prove that if I want something, I go get it. So um, <laughs> the first time I recorded a podcast with, was with Dave McGillibray. And I couldn't believe I got someone, you know, that that influential as my first person I was interviewing. It was so bad. Every word he said was echoed. It was really like tinny. Um, just my I was so nervous and it was just so terrible that I kind of almost vowed that every other one was going to be much better so then I kind of researched and I started listening to business podcasts because I wanted to learn how to podcast better and uh, I started just doing everything researching everything and um, so I just made it kind of my next thing that I was going to become good at it and I actually thrived on having that extra thing because prior to uh, being brought on at Runners Connect maybe six months before that I had been a professional athlete full-time if you want to call it that I didn't have a job Um, I was living with my at the time boyfriend now husband and uh, I was just just being a runner and I did not handle that very well at all I absolutely tanked at Chicago which was the marathon I was training for and I just hated it. I hated that I that was the only thing I had in my life. It was so much pressure uh, because if any little niggle or injury happened, it was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I've got nothing left. And so I just completely panicked. So I wanted that other thing in my life. So that Runners Connect and then the podcast gave me something else to actually find that balance. So it, it worked in a good way. When you had those moments where you had this like, you know, you mentioned like you're, you're panicking, you're worried about like your future and all of this stuff. Was it about like short term and like long term finances or was it about like just having more in your life? What, what about having this other outlet mm-hmm. was such a salve to that feeling that you'd kind of 
experienced yeah it was definitely having more in my life I mean I think most people listening have at some point and I'm sure you have Matt had that thing where you I mean it doesn't matter what level you are but you take your running too seriously you you know you might not go out for a friend's birthday because oh I've got a long run in the morning or maybe you don't have a slice of cake at a friend's birthday because you're like oh no I can't eat that I am I need to eat healthy and everything becomes about your running and you start worrying about it, like not sleeping at night because what if I don't do well in my, in my workout tomorrow? And so for me, it just, I, I just didn't like having that be my only thing that I was defined as that I was doing when people would say, what are you up to? What have you been up to? I didn't have anything to say other than I'd been running and, and, you know, most people don't understand that. So uh, I loved having uh, something else in my life to give and I'd always been someone who juggled many things. Uh, the two years before that, I had been completing my MBA while being an assistant coach and doing my running at the professional level, running like 100 miles a week. So going from those three things to just the running was just, I just couldn't handle it. I, I've always loved having many balls in the air at the same time uh, although I have been better at backing off and just focusing a little bit more recently so uh, yeah. Now is that a common theme for a lot of professional runners that you had a lot of contact with or were some people able to handle the professional nature of running better than others? I would say it's definitely a continuum but most most people can handle it better than I can. Uh, you do hear of people who uh, try the lifestyle kind of like I did and end up going back to something to, you know, maybe some volunteering, maybe some, you know, working at a local high school as a substitute teacher, something like that. Uh, I mean, Jared Ward, I think, is is quite well known for being uh, a teacher, and that's something that he enjoys. And, and so I think there are definitely variances within the personalities. Uh, but I think some people just love the lifestyle of being able to, you know, wake up, eat, go for a run, come back, nap, relax, go for another run and then go to bed. But I've never been that person. I've never been good at naps. I've never been good at watching TV and relaxing. So uh, I think I'm on the far end of uh, not liking that lifestyle. Oh, my goodness. If you don't like naps and relaxing, that seems like a horrible, like a professional athlete. It seems like that's like the, be like the <laughs> I best know. part of it. Like you hear it about was. all these Kenyans who like just nap yeah. and they relax oh, all yeah. day. Then they do their runs. And I'm just sitting here overcome with jealousy. Well, and the, the worst part for me, I mean, people who, who know me well know this, but I had insomnia for years. Actually, I don't know how this works. But having my daughter cured my insomnia. Before that, I would. What? I know it's so <laughs> counterintuitive. But now, even two nights ago, um, we are actually taking a trip to San Antonio in a few weeks, or next week actually. And um, we were trying to figure out logistics of how we're going to feed our baby while being in a hotel. You know, uh, it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world with no kitchen or anything. And so we, my husband and I, talked about this before bed and. Uh, then I went to bed and I just slept. And then he woke up in the morning and I said, oh, how'd you sleep? He said, oh, I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about what we were going to do. And I was like, oh, okay. Whereas for me in the past, any little thing I was thinking about, I felt like someone switched on my brain at 4 a.m. I would like leap out of bed. And with all these things I had to do, which weren't really things I had to do, I just felt like I did. So yeah, when I had Bailey, it just 
I don't know, I just started sleeping well. <laughs> it started off probably as this lack of sleep, but then it just kind of kept going. So she cured my insomnia. But before that, even as a professional runner, I'd be running 100 miles a week and I'd be sleeping like four to six hours a night. I don't know what, how oh, I even God. did that. I don't know. Sarah Crouch used to just not understand it at all because she'd sleep double. She'd sleep nine hours a night. She lived with me for three months. And she just couldn't understand how I was able to function. <laughs> you were just you were just made to be super active all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, it's I like guess. a blessing and a curse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you even when you were younger, like running all the time was not your bag. I, I loved hearing about how you got involved in running, specifically <laughs> your tryout story. I just mm. I, I, I heard that and I was dying laughing. So can you please, to people who don't know tell that story of when you were younger yeah I actually um recently went back to my school when I uh, last summer I went to my school and I told that to my teacher because he actually emailed me early uh this year and said to me hey we're gonna do a hall of fame we're gonna put your photo up I'd love for you to come and and we'll show you around the school so he showed me around and I told him that and he said you really did that and I said well, I think I did, like, unless it's, I've somehow made it up in my mind. But, you know, I remember pretty clearly, like, hiding in the toilets. But, yes, that, that just ruined the end of the story there. But <laughs> basically, I um, did not like running. If people assume that if you're, you know, good at running, you're an elite runner, that you just, you just, oh, you just love running. And you're just out there like, wee, this is so fun. This is the best. Um, but I didn't. I hated running. I was very much in the middle of the pack in my class. Um and the day of the cross-country tryouts for the cross-country team, I had no interest. So I hid in the bathrooms and uh, waited till it was over and then felt quite good that I was not, um, that when they then took the team to uh, the race near, actually near my house, uh, I wasn't on the team. And uh, so, yeah, I, I dodged it. But then the next thing I remember, I somehow was on the team. So I don't even have any memory of how that happened, but... Apparently, at some point, I made my way up the class or something. I don't know. It's so strange because you'd think that I'd remember every detail of my early running days, but I don't at all. So, yeah. <laughs> it was joining the cross-country team so it was so traumatic that you just blocked it out of your memory. I, I guess so. Yeah. It's, uh, the first <laughs> thing I remember is being like 14 and uh, I'd, I'd met my coach at that point. So there was a whole kind of probably a year, year of time where I don't really remember. So... Apparently, I repressed it. <laughs> so we now we know the end of the story. You become a professional runner. But what happened during those school years between you and just your coach and your team that fostered this love for the sport, mm. which obviously wasn't there at the beginning? You know, I was thinking about this today, actually, and I haven't ever spoken about this before, but I was, I was, I've been listening to the book called Grit from, um, what's her name? Angela Duckworth. Yeah, that's really a Really interesting one. book. And she was talking about someone, you know, how you learn grit and how it's usually a pivotal player in your life. And neither of my parents are, are sporty and my dad's determined, but I wouldn't say he particularly said anything inspiring at any particular point that I remember that affected my running career. But one thing I do remember uh, being 14 years old and meeting this coach of mine or this kind of um, scene of event, uh, events that took place where I was on the cross country team. I finished fourth in the local race 
uh, one of my teachers came up to me and said, you should join a club, go to this guy, went to this guy. He was completely like just out there. Very, he's just such a character. If, If anyone listening or if you, Matt, have seen um, like a typical British film where they have like what we call the Cockney guy, like very much like you're right, love, kind of <laughs> very um, London guy. This is this is my coach, and and he was just so just didn't care what anyone thought, and um, he just had such an impact on me. Like I am so thankful for him to this day. Um, his name was Brad, is Brad, and uh, he's still my mentor, and he just. He was determined that he wasn't going to push me far. There's a lot of teenagers. You see it here in the US and you see it in the UK and probably everywhere else too. They push teenagers too far, make them run too many miles. You know, they show a bit of talent early on and they say, oh, if they're running this at this age, then imagine what they're going to be doing at 16. Imagine what they're going to be doing at 18. And they just put pressure on. But Brad was the opposite. And I was actually often pushing him to give me more, but he wouldn't do it. But he did foster this thing in me to run negative splits, which has come in very handy, and um, stop if you get some kind of pain that, you know, stop while you're ahead, basically. Don't run through pain, uh, like injury pain. And he also taught me to, you know, you want to be a lifelong runner. That was the biggest lesson he taught me of everything. So he was determined that he wanted me to run for life, not just for teenage years, because he'd seen so many kids run really well and then get to age 19 and say, you know what, I'm done with this. So um, I'm so thankful to him for, to him for this day. And um, looking back on my training schedule now, it, um, it's just quite comical uh, reading what I wrote and what I thought was really hard and uh, knowing what I went on to do. Um, so uh, he kept it very easy, which I think was just such a huge plus. And, uh, and a workout for me was like six 200s or something like that. So, Oh, um, that sounds delightful. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funniest thing is I remember him strapping a GPS watch on me one day and I was so mad at him. I was like, what is this stupid thing on my wrist? It's weighing me down. And it was this big like red square one. I don't know if anyone remembers having the first Garmin. It's like a big box on your arm. And um, so I was so mad at him for sticking this watch on my arm. And and now, you know, we're all addicted to our GPS watches. So it's quite funny. I'm like re-listening to a book right now by an author uh, called Adoran Finn. So he wrote wrote the book uh, Running with the Kenyans. Oh, yeah. Um, And then I know you interviewed Toby Tanzer Mm -hmm. on your podcast. And Toby's... uh, you know, a big person in that book. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote another one a couple of years later uh, about uh, Japanese runners. It was just so interesting because you always hear about the Kenyans, but pe- so many people, me included, don't realize how dominant the Japanese mm. runners are at like that, like that second tier of pros. Mm-hmm. Like, like how many, like, like how many males, for instance, can run like a sub 64 half marathon in Japan. It's like an astonishing amount, like hundreds mm. and hundreds of Japanese runners do it in a year. Wow. Wow. And it's like, yes, yeah, so he, he was comparing it, but it was interesting to hear, you know, it was like a, you know, a blessing and a curse where part of this it is it's a very running centered athletic culture. It's like baseball is number one and like running is number two mm-hmm. over there, but it starts in high school. It's like high, the high school Ekiden races are, you know, besides like the top baseball games, like have the highest TV viewership wow, of, cool. of anything, which is great because you get so many people into running. 
right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a lot of kids are drawn to it, so on and so forth. But at the same time, because it's a high school event and it has all of this pressure on it, mm-hmm. all the coaches feel pressure. They want to keep their jobs. So they push their athletes. And all of a sudden you have all of these athletes who are reaching really, really high levels of running, but not breaking through to the next level. And it was this interesting conversation about if they could ever get to like the Ethiopians and Kenyans in the marathon, or if this overtraining at such young ages and doing it on concrete Mm -hmm. is causing them to plateau just before the top and how like, you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater because if you take away all these pressures, then less people will enter the sport in the first mm, place. It, yeah. was this, it was this interesting conversation. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, I, I don't know what the, the solution would be there because, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And, and I think it is a lot. I don't know. In England, I feel like we have a pretty good balance of um, there's a lot of people that go into it. There's a lot more attention on it than I feel over here. Um, but the dropout is mostly that first year of university, whereas here in the US, I feel like it's at the end of university. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, I've always felt that the English dropout point is a bit better because if you make it past that first year of university, people usually do it literally till the day they die, like the rest of their lives. So from what I from what I've kind of seen. So I don't know. I don't think there's a real answer there, but um that's really interesting to, to think about though. I know that was a really random tangent, but I was thinking no, about how like I'm, how you're I'm glad you said it. Well, is it so interesting you compare your high school like lead up and is how you would expect like you know, here's you think about a kid who like learns how to play like an instrument at like age eight or nine or ten, right? They have like the person in the community mm-hmm. who teaches them how to play the piano and it's just about like having a good experience and it's like this long, slow build up until you get to like a certain point, then maybe like you start to ramp it up a little bit and then a little mm-hmm. bit more, then a little bit more instead of mm-hmm. just kind of jumping into the deep end. But like the negative being, you know, we all have like this 10,000 hour mindset now yeah. where it's like, Hey, the earlier you start, Hey, shoot, the, the earlier you're going to be really good. And it's hard to like ignore those stats at the same time. I, I agree. And I kind of also think there's a few anomalies, but, for the most part with runners we all have a certain number of miles before our body kind of starts breaking down so people use those early on like especially as um, younger children or um, you know adolescents then you're getting it to where you might not make it to age 30 before your body starts breaking down so I feel like that's why I'm quite excited that I feel like in the future I might have my best years ahead of me because I have been held back for all the years uh, all those younger years so that's kind of my personal thought on uh, there's obviously some people like Dina Castor who are just freaks of nature essentially who can over override that but I think most of us have like a max mileage to what we can handle and do you think part of that can be like can you can you extend your prime do you think if you're you know, going out of your way to run on soft surfaces versus harder surfaces I don't know if it's about that I kind of more feel it's like if you are taking it to the extreme of getting your sleep and getting uh, you know taking measures with recovery maybe you're doing all the all the stuff like cryotherapy and and getting a massage every week and all those kind of things 
I feel like if you add those in, um, then you probably have a better chance more than the soft surfaces thing. And again, that comes back to you were talking about the Kenyan athletes. Well, they kind of do all that, don't they? They they rest all the time. They run on softer surfaces. So, yeah, I guess you probably could. But and and I guess they do, don't they? Because they run back and forth to school every day. So they're getting a lot of miles in early on. Um, but again, for me, that you have to be prepared to let your running kind of dictate your life and I'm not sure how many people are prepared to do that yeah that can be tough but it's also like a trial and error mm. right like you have so many people who you know have you know, reach their peaks in so many different ways right you have like like the like the whole Boston running culture going back three or four decades where everyone was running 150 miles a week in and around Boston it was like the hub of American running it was like you know the, basically like the, the best we'd ever had from a marathoning perspective, especially from a men's marathoning perspective, not from a women's marathoning perspective. Um, but then you have like the Bernard Lagats of the world who like from a professional standpoint, like almost under trains compares to his peers. And here he has, this like this 20 year prime. Yeah. That just continues to keep going and going and going. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I, I think you're exactly right. And uh, I've kind of gradually, uh, improved year after year each marathon I did I improved by four minutes other than the last one and even throughout college I kind of gradually stepped up and same with high school so uh, yeah I think if you're smart about it and you you know what works best for your body as you said trial and error then you have the best chance and that goes for every level I think Um, there's no point trying to copy someone else's training uh, if you kind of get the feeling that your body isn't handling it very well yeah, absolutely. Now, when you just when you came over here to the states to go to college, you went to Ferris State, which is a D two school, and you were an eleven time All American there. Why did you choose uh, Division two school and Ferris State in particular? Well, you obviously don't know the. I haven't shared this very often. I uh, me ending up there was kind of a bit of a fluke. Um, I spent the year before starting college in California near Laguna Beach, Elisa Viejo, for anyone who has spent time around that area, but near Laguna Beach, as that's the place most people know of. I've been there, for, oh, I spent eight months there, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I, I want to live here, I still do, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I want to live there, and I then applied for going to school there but I kind of left it a bit too late in the year and it was too late to get in that year so I managed to get into a a community college and I was going to spend a year there and then transfer across to my plan was um, UCI University of California Irvine Um, so that was my plan and so I went to the embassy strutted in there expecting to get my visa on the way out And they said, I'm sorry, we're not giving you a visa. And I just, my world crumbled. Like I was walking along the street, blubbering. Absolutely. You know, you see in movies where these women are like hysterical, or you've probably seen it, some woman in your life and women listening, you know exactly what this is, where you you can't speak. You're like spitting because you're trying to talk, but you can't, you're like, I was doing this walking along the road in London because I just didn't even know what to do. Um, I wasn't meeting my mum for a few hours, so I just did this. And people kept stopping me and saying, are you okay?" And I was not okay. But anyway, so I had no idea what I was going to do because I had absolutely put every egg in that basket thinking I was doing it. 
so I went back to the job I was doing the summer job working at a, a bike manufacturer manufacturer I guess and um and then I got an email I think it was from um a coach at this random university in Michigan called Ferris State and the coach who emailed me is no longer there and no longer coaching if this gives you anything he's also the person that told me I needed to lose weight starting my whole amenorrhea journey so not the best person in the world (laughs) but anyway um he emailed me and said you know you should come over here for university and I was like no like I just got my visa denied they told me to not ever apply for a visa again and he said, I guarantee you can get a visa. And I said, how can you guarantee that? And he gave me some spiel about knowing someone, which I now believe was not true. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I thought, and he said, I guarantee you, you'll get it. And I said, fine, like, if you can get this set up for me and I can go in there, then fine, I'll do it. So I went in there and I had all this documentation saying about... Um, why I was connected to the UK because that was their reason before that they thought I had a boyfriend in California and that was why I was going so that I could get citizenship in the US so I went in this time with all this proof that I loved my family and I was gonna (laughs) come home which I did have every intention to and somehow I honestly to this day feel like I pretty much begged the woman but they gave me this visa to this random university in Michigan. I'd never been there. I didn't really know anything about it. All I'd done was connect. I had spoken to the two coaches on the phone. Um, one of the coaches who was the head coach who I hadn't really connected with was absolutely wonderful. He ended up uh, leaving after a year, but he was wonderful. The other guy, not so much. <laughs> and um, and then uh, someone else took over, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about in a minute. Uh, but yeah, so that's how I ended up there. It's a bit of a funny backstory. Um, and I don't really share it too much because as you just could tell, it, t- it takes a while to to say. But it just kind of is a good example for people listening that, you know, I had my heart set on going to California. I absolutely thought, you know, this was my life. And then it didn't happen that way. I was just crushed. Probably um, the most I've ever been in my entire life. And then it, you know, happened for a reason because what happened next was just meant to be and and was amazing. So let's um, just dive into it. Just keep it going. Well, okay. So the person that ended up taking over um, my second year is now my husband. So (laughs) he became the coach. um, He he wasn't the guy that told you to lose weight, was he? No, 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 no. (laughs) It's the same guy that brought me over was the one. But um, yeah, no, he definitely did not do that. Um, (laughs) and so, uh, yeah, so he took over, um, and even funnier story, which some people know this, but not that many when he took over, I did not like him at all. I'd seen him around the year before and I just didn't really care either way for him. Um, I do remember the day I arrived, the girls on the team saying, Oh, who's that cute guy? And I was just like, whatever, I'm not, I'm not here for him. (laughs) Um, but anyway, so he took over, um, we didn't. I mean, we just got on fine for that time. He, he, I was, I nearly didn't go back to the university because I was worried he was going to quote unquote run me into the ground, making me run too many miles. Um, and uh, so I nearly didn't go back because I was like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's useless. I don't like him, whatever. Uh, but eventually I did go back 
and uh, he helped me my career take off. Um, and then nothing happened between us until uh, one year after I left the university. We just kind of realised um, how we felt about one another and um, we'd stayed close and stayed friends. So, um, yeah, we ended up um, getting together about a year later uh, and uh, then moving in together a few years after that. So There you go. So did he... Did you have a severe uptake in mileage when you when you got there? Like, why were you so worried at first that he was going to run you into the ground? Was that a reputation or was that where it was building? No, I I don't know where I got that from. Um, he actually hadn't coached at that point. Um, he was his degree is in automotive engineering, but he'd been volunteering with the team for a year um, because he hated his job and had decided to follow his passion, which was running. And he, his um, alma mater was Ferris State as well. So he had just gone back to help out. Uh, I don't know where I got the mileage thing from. I think it was because I had been kind of babied with my mileage the year before that. Um, I think I'd got up to maybe 50 miles a week. And he had sent me an email saying he wanted me to get up to 60 or 70. Uh, build up to that, not jump straight to that, which is what I think I thought. But it was mostly for me the fact that he hadn't coached before. Uh, although finding out later that he had actually spent a few years with Hanson Brooks um, when Des was there, she was when she was actually there, you know, all the time training with the group and everything and, and other people as well. Um, so he had got a lot of experience from the Hanson brothers while being there as well. So I didn't know that at the time. I didn't even know what Hanson Brooks was. But um, yeah, so I think it was mostly about the... Uh, lack of coaching experience that made me angry <laughs> and you know when did you have excuse me when did you have a an inkling or some sort of idea that after university that you would be in a position to potentially become a professional runner see that's what when i said earlier about england not having the drop off um that was the interesting thing for me because again if you make it past that first year in university in england you keep going so that means everyone runs together in england uh the races are all cross country is very much you know uh 17 year olds through 80 year olds all running kind of like road races but for cross country and um it just is 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 a little bit different so for me not running not continuing running was never really an option um whereas i feel like over here uh you either run um you run through college and if you're good enough you make the decision whether to be a professional or whether you're kind of like all right i'm done and a lot of a lot of people do end up saying i'm done and i can completely see why because it is very intense being a collegiate athlete but for me, that was never a question. And it wasn't even so much I'm going to choose to be a professional athlete or a, a, an elite athlete. It was just, well, of course, I'm going to keep running. Uh, it just kind of turned into, well, maybe I'll try a few half marathons and then I'd like to try a marathon. So I didn't really make a conscious decision. I didn't even know people really were sponsored um, because, again, in Great Britain, uh, they only really support – I don't even know the exact number, but I want to say it's like 20 people across track and field and road racing and everything. So 
uh, very, very few people. And I knew I wasn't at the level of that. But it was when I was told that Sokani had a uh, a program for, um, I guess it was kind of sub-elite because they had their kind of Molly Huddle tier and then it would be the next tier down. So someone told me about that. And then that's when I kind of realized like, oh, this is what a professional runner is. But at that point, I was just kind of running and I was just a runner at a high level. That's kind of how I saw it. Yeah, and we have some of those teams out here. I live in Rhode Island um, mm-hmm. as well. There's, like, there's one called New England Distance Project yep. out here, which is uh, you know a really good team. Again, the same, the same caliber of runners, it seems like. Now, when you have that level of group, so maybe someone who like you know aspires to do really good things in the running world, but isn't just some some sort of superstar right out of college. What is that life like in terms of trying to get to that next level? Like, is it just just you know what, what were your thoughts those first couple of years of, of trying to break through, but also you know not being this like immediate sensation? Um, I think it was a case of kind of just seeing where it. T- seeing where it went being curious seeing okay I'd love to get up to that next level but not saying very similarly that people do with Boston qualifiers and say I I I have to do it this year to get into 2020 um it's the same kind of thing with at that sub elite level you can say you know my goal is to run a 235 in the marathon or my goal is to run a, a um, Olympic trial qualifier but don't say it has to be this year or it has to be this race. I think a lot of it comes uh, from allowing your potential to kind of show itself, which is going to happen when you're the most relaxed and the most letting it unfold the way that it's supposed to kind of seeing it as if my body is ready to run this time to be at this level, then I'll do it. If I don't, then it's not ready yet. And it just needs a few more years of, of work. And especially if you're someone who hasn't been running that long you might have some initial kind of jumps maybe if you're a marathoner you've gone from I don't know five hours to four hours to 315 and then you think oh then my next one's going to be 245 but the higher you go the smaller the jumps get and the longer it can take so uh, just uh, I guess kind of take each season as it comes I would suggest adding in um, speed work between marathons if you are racing marathons. But I think a lot of it is just being patient with yourself and being kind and trusting that you're doing the best that you can. And and if you're meant to be at that level, then you will be. So I don't know if that's answering your question, but yeah, you know, it definitely does. And I think it's <laughs> obviously it's different for every person. Yes. Right. Like how you approached it could be very different than maybe even someone who, you know, you were running with at the time approached mm-hmm. that, you know, they might've been like, Hey, by 25, I want to have a Nike dealer or Lord knows what. Um, and you brought up something very interesting because it comes up on my show a lot. And it's something that I feel like is really easy to say, but a very hard thing to live, especially in the moment. And especially for certain kind of people. And that is being goal oriented and patient at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not easy. You know, and it's like I had someone come on and they had a great line. They said, write your, it's something to the effect of like, write your goals in cement and write your, write your timeline in sand. Hmm. Something to that effect. And I thought it was really nice. So have you always been able to live that, 
you know, that, that feeling, or has that something that's kind of been difficult for you to, to act upon? Because I guess for, for a pro, you also have the time constraints regarding, you know, you know world championship qualifiers and Olympic mm-hmm. qualifiers. So it's not simply like, Hey, I'll get there when I get there. There's these benchmarks that actually have time constraints. That's true. But then again, I would say that like, so Great Britain kind of said to me, uh, you have to, if you can run this time, then we'll consider taking you. Um, but again, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run for Great Britain, but I don't know when. Uh, it might be when mm. I'm a master age 60. It might be when I'm 25. It ended up being when I was 28. But so I feel like, yes, you're right that there are time constraints and, and goals, but at the same time, uh, I just, I've, I've mostly been the way of where I just want to do my best again, that coming from that coach, my first coach, Brad, teaching that to me that all you can do is your best and if you do your best you're going to run your best time and if that is you know you can't be disappointed or annoyed at yourself if you've run as fast as you possibly can and uh but then I have had periods where I've got you know obsessed with a certain time uh I think 240 in the marathon was that for me my first marathon I bombed um, and a lot of that was because I was so obsessed with running under 240 that I hadn't even processed um, it not happening. And when it didn't happen, I kind of took two weeks to be like, wow, that, that didn't actually happen because I just hadn't imagined any other scenario. So that for me wasn't healthy, as you mentioned, for some people that might work. But again, I feel like... Um, for the most part in my life when I've run my best it's been because I've uh, not had maybe the the pressure of a time as you said the time in the sand so not it on a certain date so even for me trying to chase the Great Britain jersey when it looked like it was really going to happen I went down to New Orleans to do a 10k to prove that I was in shape as, as they asked me to do but then I just did the best I could in that race and then I said all right well I've done what I can kind of the same again with the Boston qualifier people get their qualifying time underneath the limit and then if they find out they didn't make it well nothing no one can take away that you're a Boston qualifier yeah you might not be doing the race um, but that doesn't mean that um, you you won't ever get into Boston it just means it might take a few more years so I don't know I've always been very much a um, I'll do it when I'm ready kind of person Man, I just want to like take your brain and put it in my head. <laughs> I am so envious of that. And I, I know it like this is academically. I know that's the the yeah. proper way to think about it. But implementing it, it's almost like oh, a diet. Yeah. It's almost like a diet, right? Like I know what I should eat. But implementing it sometimes can be a completely different matter. That's for sure. So you mentioned before, it, it was all about, you know, doing the best you possibly can in those moments. So with that being the case, how have you, how has your mental game improved from, you know, when you were first at Fair State and succeeding at a high level there up until, you know, the, the, the preceding or the following decade? How did you mentally approach races and workouts that allowed you to fight through discomfort and pain to get to your highest you know, potential on that day? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think part of it, I have to kind of be honest with everyone, I think part of it is you, I mean, we we both said we've read that book, Grit. So I think you can develop grit, but I also think some of us are born with a slightly higher level to start with, which makes it maybe seem a bit easier. And I have always had kind of an ability to push myself when it matters. So I think that's... um, I don't know if that came from someone. My grandma was um, born in Germany and literally crawled over dead bodies to get out of Berlin during the war. So, you know, she's always been very gritty, very tough. And I'm not sure if that had an influence on me, but um, my, so I've always had an ability to kind of fight um, and be a bit feisty when it matters. I joke around in my community a lot about airport Tina, what I call her which is my like alter ego of when I'm at the airport particularly. But, you know, let's say if someone was going to attack Bailey, airport Tina would be out in full force. Let's put it that way. Um, But uh, yeah, so I have this kind of feisty side of me, but I think a lot of it, I've gone through stages. I went through the teenage stage of where the Eminem lose yourself. You've only got one shot. And, you know, I would kind of almost throw up because I was so nervous every race because I had to use my one shot, you know, or I was going to, whatever I thought I was going to do if I didn't run well in these teenage races. Um, And then I got to Ferris and it was kind of very much, Steve is so like calm and um, rational. And and even though I talk a lot now about not running by pace, Steve is very much a pace guy when it comes to, to track races. So all I had to do was hit my 70 second split or whatever it was. And each lap he'd say, yep, perfect or ease off a sec so that helped because it just kind of allowed me to focus on one lap at a time um so that would was what I would say was the next part the next part I'd say went a bit downhill because it became um uh you know trying to fight against myself saying the you know the typical thing that a lot of us end up doing which is why are you slowing down you're so slow stop slowing down you're the worst like keep going come on you're a wimp don't be a wimp hurry up um just very like cruel and critical um and then I met my sports psychologist in EV in 2016 no it must have been 15 and I started working with her and she kind of said very much the opposite approach of be kind to yourself and for me that's the um the one that stuck which is just talking to yourself the way that you would talk to a sister a daughter a friend rather than sorry my throat's going a bit I'm not crying I promise (laughs) (laughs) um rather than being very pressuring on yourself it's just kind of encouraging yourself and saying that the nice things to yourself that you need to hear um and so my mental game at that point kind of became all about um just giving myself grace and again saying are you doing the best you can yeah you are and and for me, that strategy works. I understand that doesn't work for everyone, um, but that's kind of where I've ended up settling. And I found that that allows me to run my best because all I'm doing is asking myself, am I doing my best? And, and if I can say, yeah, then that's all I can really do. Now, your podcast has had a lot of has had a big influence on a lot of runners because you talk to people that bring experience in a wide range of running related areas um, to bear. And it, I feel like it has such a, it's a huge effect on the people oh. who listen to it. And another 
part of your life that has had a big effect and you referenced it earlier in the show was your um what you've dealt with from uh with amenorrhea mm-hmm. and you know you're you're, I don't know if it, was, if it was, I'm trying to remember now, like I, I know this and now it's like escaping <laughs> my mind, whether it was a blog post or something you've written or something you wrote and or um, podcast where you talked about it. But I remember a couple of years ago when it went viral and it was like this, you know, it kind of looks like this sensation in the running world. <laughs> and I guess first thing is what were you surprised when the story like spread like that? Um, yes and no. I, um, when I, kind of realized how widespread amenorrhea was within the elite world didn't realize it was you know for everyone else too um I said to my friends uh Neely Spence Gracie being one of them Heidi Greenwood being another one uh those are the two that come to mind I said when I when I come out about this when I tell the tell the world uh which was pretty much the people that followed my blog because uh you know, I, I felt like I was lying to people at that time. And I said, I'm when I do this, I'm going after it. I'm going to make sure that people like us, because at the time, all three of us had dealt with it at some point, uh, never feel like this again. And so I knew I was, again, me being a go-getter, I knew I was going to do something. Um, so I did approach Runners World and I knew that I was going to do something. Did I have any idea that People Magazine would call me on the phone? <laughs> no, <laughs> never in my wildest dreams did I think People Magazine would call me. Uh, so that was the real big one. Um, and it was kind of, I didn't think it would take off the way that it did. Just, you know, it, it seemed like everyone was kind of talking about it. And, and I think that blog post, well, my my website crashed. So I know that a lot of people were looking oh, at gosh. it. yeah and um you know I had people I saw a friend in the airport that day and his wife had texted him saying did you see Tina's blog post before he even saw me in the airport so when he said to me what the heck did you do today because I um I had uh you know I saw him in the airport and he was like what did you do Sarah texted me asking if I'd seen your blog post and so uh, you know, that had to be pretty big for someone's wife to text their husband and I just happened to see him. But um, I mean, it felt good that it was getting out there and making people feel like they weren't the only ones going through it. But at the same time, I think um, it was it was the the world was ready for that conversation, whereas any other time, I think it would have been something that would have kind of died a death and people would have been like, stop talking about that. It's embarrassing kind of thing so um it was just the right time right place and I just happened to become the face of it I guess (laughs) and how was the timing for you were you ready for the spotlight that it that it brought on you um I didn't really I mean at the time it all happened so fast um I stopped running myself uh and then it kind of went I I kind of admitted it I guess about two weeks later so I didn't really have that much time I'd had the time to process what we were going to do but it one thing it was nice for was that it was a nice distraction as much as it doesn't seem like it would be it was a nice distraction from what I was actually trying to do which was overcome it (laughs) because it suddenly got um, all the people kind of you know talking to me and, and reaching out to me and asking for help and that allowed me to not sit there and fester and think about what I was doing so it was quite nice even though I think had it 
taken longer for me to to overcome it I probably would have said the opposite because I would have been thinking that it was stressing me out with all this expectation and I mentioned People magazine they did a second they did a third one but they did a second one that was called like elite runner still not pregnant and oh god (laughs) so like things like that if they'd have kept coming out with those like six months later elite runner you know nothing's changed I I think I would have started to feel pressure and and that I wasn't ready for it but um yeah and then I I loved the beginning of your you know your 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 current podcast uh Tina for real and how like the the first podcast is great you're like we're gonna do all these things it's just gonna you know it's it's me talking about all these all these like wide-ranging topics I'm so excited um you know and I'm entering this new phase of my life and then like I swear to God, it's like the second, the second episode is like, yay, guess when I'm pregnant? It's like, oh, wow, yeah. that was fast. <laughs> like, it was like, so it was like this, this quick turnaround. Like, uh-huh. like for you, what was it like to not only, you know, go through the amenorrhea stuff in terms of like being for all intents and purposes, like the spokeswoman in the running <laughs> community for that to then so, and maybe it didn't feel quick to you, but like, it felt like on the outside looking in to quickly mm. then like being like in a very very different spot yeah I, I mean there's there's a few things to say to that um first is that no it didn't feel as fast to me um in fact I ended up buying those little little cheap ovulation strips because I was getting really impatient um but primarily because once again my endocrinologist when I'd been see him the year before and my gynecologist, who ended up being my OB, had said to me, I was probably going to take three to six months. And they said that. So I was like, right, challenge accepted. You say three, I say two. So, oh, what, so what, that, about, what happened to the goals with no timelines, Tina? I know. I know. <laughs> yep. Some things I just can't help. But anyway, so, he, so they said three. So I, well, they said three to six. So I took that as three. And then I said, right, I'm going to beat you and get two. So then at eight weeks, I was starting to get really impatient. I was like, this is not happening. Why is this not happening? Um, And I was getting quite annoyed. So I bought these ovulation strips to see if anything was happening. But um, so it didn't feel like it was quick because I was like, come on, come on. But um, I can see why it did feel quick because um, I, I think in some ways it gives people a lot of hope that if you do the things that, you know, I or one of the experts, the the writers of No Period Now, what the book um, tell you to do, that things can come together very quickly. And, and in a lot of cases they do. But I also feel like I ended up kind of annoying a lot of people or not annoying them, but kind of giving them false hope because not everyone is going to have it happen quite as quickly as I did. Um, and not everyone is going to be able to gain 15 pounds in six weeks like I did. So be able to kind of let go of all, um, I don't know, weight restrictions or fears about gaining weight like I did. So uh, I think I've had a lot of influence and, and um, I can't remember what I was going to say now. Um, but well, the, I'm, to, yeah. I'm go sorry. on, you can. <laughs> I, i've forgotten what i was going to say the final part there was one more thing but it might come to me <laughs> all right well if it does you know, th- you know just jump right in and say it and you know it's funny how you mentioned how like you you know people might have been annoyed by how quick it worked for you because it uh-huh. might they might ha- have the same journey but 
on the other end of the spectrum, you had this other phase of your life where like you were talking to all these people trying to figure out what was causing it mm-hmm. in the first place, your menorrhea. And it seemed like you could never find someone that could really pinpoint it for you. You kept hearing like, Oh, you're fine. Oh, it'll be okay. Or, mm-hmm. you know, people just almost like putting like a bandaid on a problem. Yeah. And that was the, the frustrating thing that like, yeah, people think that maybe it did happen quick for me and yes, it did. But as you mentioned, I'd spent the last, I mean, I'd, I'd actually looked into it straight away as soon as I first lost my period. But again, yeah, people kind of said, oh, you're fine. Um, but then the last two years, I'd been working on different things. You know, I'd increased my fat intake. I had worked with um, a nutritionist. I had uh, tried, <laughs> tried and failed to get more sleep and more rest um and so I had been essentially working on it kind of under the surface for a few years uh and it was just kind of the drastic uh all of a sudden stop in running and weight gain that that finally kicked it over the edge but I tried kind of all the soft soft things first and actually um I don't know if you know this Matt but I I've I've written a, a book on it um and it's coming out in January and I kind of have run through it the same way for people so you know kind of in order it's getting harder and scarier as it goes um and I wanted to do that because that's kind of what I did people just see the last three months of my journey to overcome it but there was actually a lot more that went on before that that I tried and as I mentioned seeing an endocrinologist like that's not someone that you see every day uh but I'd booked in to see him because it was my concern had all the tests that he recommended I'd had like p tests I'd I'd done everything so um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that is a good point that it's easy to just look at the drastic part of my journey, but that was kind of because I'd reached a breaking point anyway. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and no, you're right. I didn't know the book was coming out. So not that we did this to promote a book, but let's go do it. Since we're already here. When, what's the title and uh, can people pre-order? Uh, yes, the the title, not surprisingly, is called Overcome Amenorrhea um and uh you ca- it will be on amazon that's probably the the primary primary way to find it it's not going to be available for pre-order until um the 1st of january but if i may be so cheeky as to ask your listeners if you are going to buy a copy if you could wait to the week it does come out which is it's going to come out on january 21st because i've recently found out that apparently amazon does not include pre-orders towards um their bestseller list so if you think you're going to forget and you won't buy it anyway um because you'll forget then by all means pre-order but if you don't mind helping me out with um buying it the week it comes out on january 21st that would be amazing but yes so it's just going to be uh, available the three weeks before uh for pre-order so that's great well yeah put it on your wish list and then you know <laughs> Give yourself a little tickler and then you, you'll, you'll get it the week up. Are you going to be doing an audio book as well? I haven't decided about that. Not initially. I kind of like the idea of doing it. I don't even know how you go about doing an audio book. So I'd need to do some research into that. Um, <laughs> but I kind of like the idea that feels very like professional and serious. So we'll I see. Can, I can talk to you offline. I actually talked to some people about that. Just so I was curious myself. So oh, I can okay. talk to you offline about that. But I think... 
I think actually producing a hard copy book is is even more serious and professional. So. Well, it's not it's, as it is Amazon. People can order print to what's it called? Print. I can't remember the word. See, I I don't know. It's like self published. Yeah, it is a self published book because I didn't really approach any agencies or any publishers because I didn't want this to be a high pressure situation where it takes a year to come out. I literally wanted to make this for people who either wanted to read my story um, and kind of hear my background because it goes through the whole thing or um, people who actually need it. And and for me, being for people who are in that situation or have been in that situation, you don't want to wait a year. Like you're, you're already struggling. You're already wondering what the heck is wrong with you. So I just wanted to get it out there as quickly as I could. And, and so self-publishing was by far the quickest way to do that. But yeah, you can get print versions of it. So. All right. Sounds good. And you get to keep more of the profit if you, if you, if you self-publish. That's true. So yeah. there you go. All right. So I do a series of questions at the end of every episode. Um, so before I get into them, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun talking to you and finally getting a chance to talk to you after hearing you for so many years. So thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. Your questions have been amazing. So, so fun. This has really been fun. Well, I've been thinking about talking to you for three years. If I hadn't known about <laughs> good questions, I'd be in some serious trouble. <laughs> Am I that scary that you uh, you didn't want to approach me and say hello? Oh, I don't man. feel like I give off a scary vibe, do I? No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. You know, it, it's funny. It's like, I, you know, I, um, I don't approach a lot of current or former professional athletes and yeah, I guess there is one of those things where it's like, it's not that I'm intimidated by them as a person, but I just think it's like the genre of like, they did something amazing. Mm-hmm. And like that in of itself is intimidating. Mm, I could see that. And, and I think actually in, in some ways you're kind of getting a different group, which are people, you know, the kind of people that you mostly interview are, you know, their stories are missed a lot of the time, whereas a lot of the top level professionals and elites their stories have been rehashed so many times um and often the same questions that it is nice to hear from different people um so i think in some ways it's good that you don't do that there you go all right oh hey so when you go out on a run are you wearing headphones or no headphones it's my husband listening if in which case no headphones (laughs) um he, he always gets on me for doing this i never used to listen to music when i was running as a professional i did not but now i listen to podcasts or audiobooks so yes they usually are in my ears not workouts and long runs though only easy runs okay so what audiobooks or podcasts do you have a strong preference for I'm a real self-help nut. I love listening to self-help books. So as I mentioned, Grit earlier, um, I have a guy coming on my podcast next week called Guy Winch, who wrote a book called Emotional First Aid. That's been one I've been listening to. And I actually don't really listen to many running podcasts. Um, I tend to listen to like businessy ones just to kind of learn things while I'm going. I like learning uh, new skills and new things to kind of try out. So, yeah. Well, yeah, when you're awake for 20 hours a day, you know, you got, you got to do something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So what's some advice, so some running advice that you give other people but have trouble following yourself? Ooh. Um, hmm. I guess it just has to be the whole listening to your body thing. Um, I'm getting better at it, but I still don't think we're all that good at it because, um, we all, and I definitely, as you just mentioned with the sleep thing, it's very easy to say, listen to your body. 
but it's quite difficult when you're in that moment and and maybe you've got like something that's bothering you injury wise or you're feeling a bit sick especially sickness for me I'm kind of like I don't get sick Um, (laughs) but I have to admit that sometimes I do all right so if you could run one more race for the rest of your life but you could run it every year what race would that be so I'm only allowed to do this one race and that's it yeah like no other races that's it. One race, but you can run it every single year. The London Marathon. Yeah. London Marathon. Uh, do you want why? Yeah. Or, okay. Um, because that's the one that kind of really inspired my love of running. Um, uh, even as a teenager running cross-country races, I knew I'd someday run a marathon. Um, I watched Paula Radcliffe run by me on the way to the world record. And um, so... Yeah, I just and and doing it twice. Uh, I've done five marathons, two of which have been London, and both times they were just incredible. And having family and friends along the way, so yeah, definitely that one. See, you showed that woman in the visa's office. You'd be back. <laughs> oh yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what is on the other side, other end of the spectrum? What is your bucket list race? I have so many on there, but um, this all the usual. I, can I can I be a cheat and say the marathon majors? <laughs> sure, sure. All right. Okay. So which, which ones are unfulfilled? Uh, I've only done uh, London and Chicago, so all the other four is it? Four. Yeah, yeah, four. six, six in total. Yeah, yeah. six. Yeah. All so, right. Uh, but I uh, can I also say um, the Gold Coast Marathon if I was to select one race because um, that was the one that I never got to do with my. Um, when I stopped running, that was what I was training for. And I, so that's on, like unfulfilled to be continued. <laughs> Got it. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Last one is uh, who is your dream running partner? I, I, I don't know if you've listened to my Ali on the run podcast episode. I'm sure I haven't. You, I'm sure many of your listeners are the same and they'll know my answer. <laughs> I just love Leonardo DiCaprio, so I'd make them run. <laughs> I have a weird obsession with him, so yeah. All right, so well, that's a good one. Yeah, I think okay. So you're that, you're the second person to pick a movie star of sorts. Mm. I think another person picked Ellen. Oh, Ellen would be good. Yeah, she'd be good. But I, I can't let go of my Leo obsession. He was literally the first person that popped into my mind, so I have to say that. That's it. That, that, that's how you know it's the right answer. <laughs> Tina, thank you so much for coming on the show. It took a while to get this done. I'm glad you stuck with me. And I'm so appreciative for you coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. This was absolutely a blast. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thank you, Tina, for coming on the show. Also, just want to reiterate something I said in the introduction. You can pre-order her book, at any time. Do not feel the need to wait. If you don't want to wait, you can pre-order it now. If you're going to do it anyway, might as well get it out of the way. And, you know, it's one thing that you know about, you know, this is one thing you know about Tina. She's already put it all out there. You already know whether you like her or not. She has so many podcasts. She's been on a lot of podcasts. And the fact of the matter is that she's a wonderful person. And I have no doubts her book is going to hit home. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Shout out to McCurdy Train for sponsoring this episode. If you want to reach your heights, As a runner, as an athlete, having a coach is vital. The best athletes in the world in every sport have a coach. So why don't you have a coach? If you don't, 
Go on to McCurdyTrained.com, fill out their questionnaire, get in touch with James, and see if they are a good fit for you. Space is limited. So if you're on the fence, jump off the fence and make the move to McCurdy Trained. Also, shout out to Megaton Coffee. Go check them out at MegatonCoffee.com. If you are an avid runner, then I know that, what, 95% of my audience drinks coffee and maybe 50% of those people drink too much coffee. Try Megaton Coffee. Believe me, you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it, and happy running.